Hello everyone, my name is Reese Gralinski and this is Young History, episode 151 on Angola. Now the capitalist country is actually Luanda, and the name Angola comes from Kimbundu, which was one of the languages spoken here by the native tribes. The word for king, which was Angola, was the basis for the name Ndongo Kingdom, so Kingdom of Kings, pretty much. So therefore, the current nation, being in Angola, is the land of kings or land of rulers. Angola is home to diverse landscapes and natural wonders, including the towering Tundavala Fisjar, its beautiful beaches along the Adla- Atlantic Ocean, and the lush Lona National Park, which features a unique mix of both desert and coastal ecosystems. Some other facts are that the country is home to the ancient and unique Wilwichia mirabilis, which is a plant species that can live for over a thousand years. Some of the plants here in Angola are believed to be among the oldest living organisms currently on the planet. Angola also has a rich cultural heritage with over 90 ethnic groups. The diversity is reflected in various aspects of the Angolan culture, including music, dance, and many traditional ceremonies. Finally, kizomba, a popular dance and music genre, originated in Angola. It has gained international popularity and is known for its smooth and romantic movements. And that is pretty much that. I don't want to dilly-dally any more than I usually do. So we're just going to get right into this. I appreciate you guys for coming. appreciate you guys for listening. And I very much hope you enjoy it. So, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Angola. And this is Young History. I hope you guys enjoy. Our origins begin with the Khoi and San Bushmen, who were the first people groups that we can actually pin down that lived in this nation around 200 BC. The Khoi, traditionally, were nomadic pastoralists, relying heavily on herding livestock such as cattle and sheep. Their nomadic lifestyle was adapted to the arid and semi-arid environments in which they lived because it was hard to make actual long-term settlements there. They just wanted their animals to graze from area to area, so it was a much more nomadic style of living. The San Bushmen were also nomadic pastoralists, and their language is unique for the many clicks and consonant sounds it used compared to other languages in the region. Bantu migrations saw the Bantu people that likely originated in Cameroon move into this region and take power over the indigenous people groups around 500 BC. Many different Bantu cultures and people groups formed as they established complete control over the region. One of the most significant civilizations we have regional record of is the Congo Kingdom. The Congo Kingdom was established in Angola and Congo in the 1300s. And I know I just made a really big jump, but the fact is there's very little actual history written down or well-preserved from this time. But we do know the different people groups that are there, the Bantu that formed into so many different tribes, one of them eventually becoming the one that makes the Congo Kingdom. So to talk about stuff that was going on with the Congo Kingdom, the most powerful regional political entity at the time was the Kingdom of Muini. Also in the 1300s, the forces of the Congo Kingdom conquered the Muini to unite the region under one ruler. The Congo also held an administrative role over the Angola Kingdom, which was a separate ethnic entity of Angono people. The Angono people also used seashells as currency. They could be traded for things as simple as chickens and as complex as human slaves. The Portuguese arrived in 1483 under the leadership of Captain Diago Chao. He was 
the first person to land here as a captain of European ships, and he saw the land as very opportune for expansion. Portuguese explorers and tradesmen negotiated trade deals with the Congo Kingdom rulers. The Portuguese would give gold, goods, and mainly firearms. In return, they would receive ivory, and most importantly, slaves. The demand for enslaved people increased because of the plantation culture in Brazil. So, Portugal started to purchase more and more captured Angolans. This made the Congo Kings very rich. Estimates suggest that over 1 million Angolans were forced into the Middle Passage by Portuguese and African slavers. Portuguese rule was expanded in 1576 with the creation of Luanda, the present-day capital port city of Angola. Other port cities were built so that Portuguese rule could be expanded inland, but that was a risky and rare venture. Portuguese missionaries sought to spread Christianity in Angola. They established missions and converted some local rulers and communities to Christianity. The interaction between Christianity and traditional African religious practices influenced the cultural landscape of Angola. Now we have to talk about one of the most prominent and unique figures in Angola's history, and that was Queen Nzinga. She was the monarch of the Ndogo and Mantamba from the 1580s to 1663. She was a diplomatic ruler that tried to negotiate first with fairness against the Portuguese, but the greedy tradesmen refused to her request. Nzinga then took up arms against the Portuguese settlers to regain control of the land her and her people had lived on for so long. She was both the monarch and commander-in-chief of the military. Her tactics in war and successful motivational speeches led the Ndogo to many victories against the Portuguese forces. In 1641, the Dutch started to directly attack the Angolan ports to challenge the Portuguese. Queen Nzinga allied with the Dutch and recaptured Luanda in 1641 as well. This established a brief period of Dutch rule. The Dutch established control over Luanda and some of the other coastal areas, which included some of the strong forts and trading posts. Dutch rule was characterized by the economic exploitation of the land, which included involvement in the slave trade despite allying with local peoples through Queen Nzinga. The Portuguese, determined to regain control of their colonies, launched efforts to reconquer Luanda. After several years of conflict and resistance, the Portuguese successfully expelled the Dutch from Luanda in 1648. The Portuguese continued to face small spurts of Dutch resistance in other parts of Angola until 1657. Salvador de Sá was a Portuguese military commander who led the liberation campaign to retake Angola for the Portuguese. The battles for Angola were brutal but ended in 1657 with the peace negotiations between the Portuguese and Queen Nzinga. The Portuguese re-established full control over Angola. And despite the brief mention of it here, Queen Nzinga was extremely prominent in the history of this country. She embodied the resistance Angolans had in them, and she would be the motivation and basis point for many of the future resistance moves that Angola made. She was very independent while also being very calculated and systematic in the way that she challenged things that she did not agree with. But nonetheless, Portuguese rule was re-established, and that brought a return to the old culture of slaves being exported without any sort of consent, and different resources like ivory and gold being harvested for the Portuguese benefit. We make a jump then to 1834, when British pressure found its way to the Portuguese colony, and the slave trade was ended. However, the enslavement of Africans in Angola did not end. The Portuguese settler minority placed policies and laws that limited the freedom of black and mixed Angolans. On top of that, there was a lot of forced labor to harvest cash crops like coffee, cotton, and tobacco. Wars for Angola were fought throughout the inland parts of Angola as the Portuguese carved out a brutal path to establish control over the entire region. Portuguese rule was stretched to the modern borders of Angola in 1916. The brutality of the Portuguese and the loss of life from the conflicts caused there to be a great resistance to Portuguese presence. 
This would mount over the next 50 years as a move was made to establish a proper rebellion against Portuguese rule. By 1961, though, the Angolans had had enough. There was the Boxi de Caixanje revolt. It was a widespread protest where agricultural workers demanded better workers' rights, which rolled into greater support for protests against Portuguese rule nationwide. The Portuguese Air Force bombed over a dozen villages, which killed thousands of Angolans who were accused of being protesters. In retaliation for this, resentment grew and proper resistance organizations formed in the nation. The nationalist group, called the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, also known as UNITA, there was also the Popular Movements for the Liberation of Angola, and the National Liberation Front of Angola, which was MPLA and FNLA, respectively. All of them rose to challenge Portuguese rule. In retaliation to the earlier slaughter of early protesters, in retaliation to the earlier slaughter of the protesters, by the Air Force, about 1,000 white Portuguese civilians were killed by Angolan resistance groups. The government reacted to this very aggressively once again and killed about 20,000 native Angolans. The backlash from this was that the resistance groups began the Angolan War for Independence. The Angolan War for Independence was ripe with instability because none of the three groups were able to agree on how to handle the war effort or administrate the country. This instability made the war sour for the resistance side heavily as they were unable to find many victories. However, external efforts became the biggest path to success against the Portuguese. African scholars had long been preaching to the liberal Portuguese population about the horrors of imperialism and the abuses they suffered. Over time, this led to a lot of support for an anti-imperialist move in Portugal, which ended up becoming an actual movement in the country. The 1974 Carnation Revolution was launched in northern Portugal to end the rule of the monarchy in that nation. Movement success. Upon this movement's success, a stance towards anti-imperialism was accepted in Portugal, which meant that the move towards independence was approaching more rapidly than ever for Angola. The Alvor movement was a meeting between three major resistance groups to settle the governing of the country once independence was achieved. And it became clear that the Portuguese government, which was now being moved towards a democracy, was forcibly pulling all of its troops out of foreign conflicts to handle internal business, and that meant that there was nothing stopping the actual independence of Angola. So, on November 11th of 1975, independence was officially declared in Angola. Augustino Neto was the communist leader of the MPLA that took power in Luanda and became the first president of the nation. He was in power from 1975 to 1979. In no time, instability between the three aforementioned parties broke out into an all-out conflict known as the Angolan Civil War. The Civil War was fought from... 1975 until 2002. The MLPA and FNLA were the two main belligerents, but UNITA was brought into the war when MLPA killed 200 members in June of 1975. The FLPA was suppressed and UNITA ended up being the main opposition to the MLPA. It was a clash of ideals and saw the USA and USSR back their respective sides with arms and ammunition. There was a time in the war that was fought mainly by non-Angolan powers. The Fidel Castro regime in Cuba supported the communist ideals of the MPLA, so Cuban troops were sent to battle on their behalf. On the other end was the South African forces that not only opposed communism, but opposed the independence movements in Namibia and Angola. The South African force was widely unsupported due to the apartheid system causing negative waves in the international community. Therefore, it was easier for the Angolan Cuban force to expand control and eventually push the South African forces out of Angola. 
There was a time of relative stability, but tensions in the war flared up again in 1983. And this year, South African forces returned to Angola as an even larger force to challenge the MPLA. In retaliation, Fidel sent thousands of Cuban soldiers and weapons to Angola to do battle. Fighting went back and forth until the decisive 1987 Battle of Quito Guanaval. The Battle of Quito Guanaval began in the town of Quito Guanaval, which is a town in southeastern Angola which held strategic importance due to its proximity to a key transportation route and the presence of an airfield. Controlling this area was crucial for both the MPLA and the insurgent group UNIDA. The Battle of Quito Guanaval was characterized by a year-long siege of the town. South African and Cuban forces, along with the Angolan government troops, engaged in intense combat. The fighting involved both conventional and guerrilla warfare tactics that tore the town apart. The battle was brutal, but ended with the MPLA pressuring South African forces to end the fighting. But it was widely seen as a stalemate because of the loss of life and destruction caused by both sides. The South African side accepted this because they were losing the war. The agreement was that Cuba would pull its military force from Angola, the South African force would pull all influence from the country, and the MPLA would lead the nation. Jose Eduardo dos Santos was the politician that took power as the MPLA candidate. Because of the agreement with Cuba, Angola was meant to be a communist country after the Civil War. But things didn't stay that way. After only a year, the Angolan MPLA government accepted a social democratic system. Dos Santos oversaw the expansion of the oil industry, which flooded a lot of money into the MLPA government. However, wealth was not well distributed, and it was the only sector making real money. UNIDA members took over the region's most heavily filled with diamonds and established mines to try and dominate the industry. Eventually, diamonds became a major export, but the industry was capitalized on through mainly very nasty measures. The De Beers Company, which is a pretty dirty international diamond corporation, paired up with the Angolan Diamond Company, known as Endiama, to export Angolan diamonds to international companies rather than to Angolans themselves. The poorest Angolans were the ones mining all the diamonds without getting paid well for their work. Jonas Savimbi was a leader of the UNITA in the late 1980s. He made negotiations with George Bush to move U.S. support behind UNITA. Between 1985 and 1992, around 60 million U.S. dollars were sent to Angola to help fund the UNITA political effort against communism. The 1992 elections saw the MLPA win majority and slight margin, but accusations of corruption were laid at the feet of the MPLA by the UNITA force. So, UNITA civilian supporters rose up to protest the results of the election. This led to the Halloween Massacre. In October of 1992, thousands of UNITA supporters were shot dead by the MLPA government for their resistance to the election results. Reactions from this on both sides placed the country right in another civil conflict. Fighting went back and forth for a decade, and power in the government shifted between UNITA and MLPA. There is also the Executive Outcomes Group. This was a South African mercenary group that was accused of taking payments in the amount of $110 million today to protect the oil interests of a specific international oil company. The executive outcomes seemed to not only protect these interests, but also supported the MLPA by training its armed forces. Because of this, UNIDA was pushed back to its traditional homeland and was no longer seen as a threat to MLPA rule. Savimbi was assassinated in 2002. He was killed by MLPA forces. His replacement spent just 12 days in office before meeting the same fate. The aftermath of both these deaths led to a lasting time of peace negotiations between the two sides that had fought in the civil conflict. After 26 years of nasty warfare, the MPLA gained victory and the negotiations occurred. The war was officially ended on April 4, 2002.
By the end of the war, as many as 1.5 million people lay dead, alongside 4 million that were displaced. And on top of all that, the nation was torn apart in almost every area. Less than half the nation had access to water, and the mortality rate for children under 5 was 30%. The life expectancy for all other Angolans was just 40 years old. Another issue was that around 15 million landlines that were placed during the war remained armed across Angola. These mines have since led to many deaths and injuries for innocent Angolan children and people that have ran around areas unexpectedly. In 2016, a drought hit Angola that made it the driest season in 35 years. Crops weren't growing and a food crisis occurred until the end of 2017 when aid was given and a wetter season occurred. Jose Eduardo dos Santos had literally been in power this entire time from when I was talking about the Civil War back in the 80s all the way to the present tense, which was 2017. He had rigged election after election and made it impossible for opposition parties to ride in the name of defending his nation against the effects of the Civil War. He eventually stepped down in 2017, and he was shamed for his all-but-confirmed embezzlement of Angola oil funds, which could have been in the hundreds of millions. There is some proof with this because Isabel dos Santos, his daughter is currently one of the richest women in Africa, despite there not being any real proof of the things she owns. All of her businesses appear to be fronts for the fact that her father, the former president, was embezzling a lot of oil money to make her and his family rich. But things started to shift because Joao Lorenco became the current president of the country before the turn of the 2020s. He gained that position on the grounds of anti-corruption, but little has been done to actually change the state of Angola's political system. And that gets us to the present, where this is very much a political system that needs change. The nation still has a lot of rebuilding efforts ahead of it, because the violence of the wars since independence can still be seen everywhere. However, foreign investment from the UN in China has led to more tourism, trade, and economic success in Angola. The economy is growing rapidly. However... This growth has not found its way into the lives of most Angolans. The corruption with the oil wealth has caused the capital city, Luanda, to be one of the most expensive in the world. Prices for everything in the city are heavily inflated because most of the people that visit said city are workers for oil companies that have extreme wealth. And of course, oil is the main export and is the main thing keeping Angola, even at its current struggling floating state. However, all this wealth itself is not distributed well throughout Angola. Around 50% of the nation remains impoverished, living on $2 a day or less. There is a lot of hope for Angola, but it will take a lot of consistent effort and change to make this nation a strong one in wake of its dark past. And that brings us to the end, where I always like to do a takeaway or a mindset. And with Angola, that's going to be find a way to keep pushing forward. I know it sounds simple, it sounds like something I've said before, but with this, it couldn't be more true. This nation and its people have been through a lot. They both chose to fight in a brutal civil war for their own ideals, which they thought would make their country better, and it lasted almost three decades. Everything this country's been through since has been very brutal. There's widespread poverty, growth has been up and down, and for the average Angolan, things are not super great. It's hard to be in a country that is this divided and is in this much struggle. Nonetheless, these people are still here, still pushing on, still doing every single one of these things. And because of this, they're starting to get better. The country's getting better, the economy's getting better, and it's a slow, slow crawl. It's not like Angola's going to wake up tomorrow and be this lovely country that everyone is treated equal in, but it's getting there. And it's been purely based off the people and the hard work they've done. So I say you could pull away from that the motivation to do the same thing. Whatever your struggle is, whatever that up and down is for you, the thing you need to push through, 
all you have to do is push through it and continue to put your head down and fight for it and push forward and just get there. Just get to where you need to be. Just get out of this dark space because you are going to end up very successful. And I know that's true because if Angola and its people can survive all it's been through in the past 50 years, then you could absolutely continue to push through whatever it is you're going through. So with that, that gets us to the very end where I just want to say goodbye. This was a unique episode. I quite like doing these Lucifone countries. It's interesting to see the history compared to the French and British former colonies that get more coverage, but are also, I've covered a lot frequently, so it's cool to get the mix up, but nonetheless, I'm very glad you guys are here, I'm very glad you guys listened, and with that, my name is Reese Karolinski, this is Young History, and that was Angola. Hope you guys enjoyed.